Have you ever been somewhere where you've been completely bewildered as to where you are? I remember the first time that I arrived at Brussels Midi Station, which is a big station in Brussels, if you'll work that out. Brussels South, to put it in English. And it's the major interchange where international trains from Holland and Germany and Paris and England come together, as well as with the hundreds of trains that serve Brussels and its suburbs and the cities of Belgium. And it is a most confusing station. It has got platforms going all the way the, wrong, the whole length. It's got platforms stretching out to the south. It's got corridors that run right through the middle. And right down the side, it's got two metro lines and about five different tram routes. And trying to find out where you are or where you need to go next can be very confusing. And when, last year, the Channel Tunnel caught fire with me on the Belgian side of it, I found it somewhat confusing as I suddenly found myself stuck in a relatively unfamiliar city. I actually go to Brussels quite often, so I know roughly where places are thinking, where do I go from here? Or maybe perhaps you've been out for a drive somewhere and you're trying to find where you are on the map. You know, when there's a crash in front of you and the sign comes up and says that at Junction 25 on some road that you're not going down has had a crash, but you've got a funny feeling it might affect you and you say to your navigator, where else could I go? And your navigator says, I don't know, where's the map? And then, where are we? You've been there, navigators? Or navigatoresses, as the case may be? Or maybe you've got a satellite navigation system. I sit at work and I look out of my window and the number of times I see dirty great articulated lorries that have come up and over the bridge into TRL's entrance and look completely bemused because they've never told them to turn left at the roundabout that isn't on their internal map. (laughs) I love the Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, which um, have all sorts of silly stories of mixing up with crazy science and fairy tales and all sorts of things. And there are some characters in that called the Weird Sisters. They are the three witches who kind of first appear in a, in a spoof of Macbeth. And one of these characters is a lady called Esmeralda Weatherwax, known as Granny to her friends. And Granny Weatherwax is an amazingly overconfident person. And although she's a witch, she's a kind of good witch. I know should be talking about this in church, I know. But the the uh, idea is that she works with a thing called headology. In other words, she makes people think the things that are going to get the, things, the, result, the good result that she wants. And there's a story in that where the three, sister, three uh, friends are walking through this wood and they're getting in a complete another muddle. And one of the other characters, a thoroughly disreputable lady called Nanny Og, says, go on, Esme, admit it, you're lost. And she says, I ain't lost. I know where I am. It's everything else around me that's moved. <laughs> Have you ever felt like that? You know where you are. It's just everything else around you has changed. But you realise we may well laugh, but the Bible describes that people who are not in a living relationship with Jesus really are lost. And that really is not a good place to be. Have you got your Bibles with you? If you have, will you turn with me to Luke chapter 15? If you haven't, then you'll just have to listen as I read it from the New International Version. Now, the tax collector and the sinners were all gathered around to hear him, that's Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, 
This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus then goes on to tell the story of the prodigal son. We don't have time to read all of that now. But how many times have you put something down somewhere and then forgotten where it was? Tomorrow morning, I've got to get up bright and early. I'm just going to move this down because it seems to... Sorry, pardon, Phil. Every time I bend down and breathe on it, it rumbles. Tomorrow morning, I've got to get up bright and early and catch the one minute to seven train to London in order to catch the 25 past nine train to Paris. One of the things that you have to do when you get to St Pancras Station is go through passport control. And so one of the things I will need to do tomorrow morning is make sure that I have got my passport in my pocket. Now, I did check yesterday night that the passport was where I thought it should be. So that when I go to look for it in the morning, I will find it. This is of great significance because a couple of times ago, when I had to go to Paris, I went to the place where my passport usually is, and it should be, and it wasn't. This was not good because I had to leave to catch the train or the plane or whatever I was doing very shortly. So, did I calmly sit down and think... Did I, with great faith, sit and pray, Lord, please reveal the passport to me? Did I? I know, panicked. I searched high and low. It should have been there. Why isn't it there? I'm sure I put it somewhere safe so that I could find it easily. Is it there? Is it there? Janet was looking high and low underneath the piles of filing. You know, the papers that are in a pile that haven't yet been filed, but you know what's in there. You know, we went right down to the archaeological depth, round about to the Mesozoic period, no passport. And uh, I rang the office, said, could you check my desk, just in case I've absentmindedly left it in my desk drawer, because I needed to enter it on a form somewhere. And so I had people in the office panicking around, looking for Peter's passport. And then I thought, hang on a minute, what jacket was I wearing the last time I used it? carefully went through every jacket because I couldn't remember. Eventually, the penny dropped and I did find it and I did catch the train. But, oh dear. The process of finding that lost item in our household was um, frenetic on that day. <laughs> well, you know what it's like, you've done something like that. 
I mean, only this week I had a telephone call. I just sat down in the office and somebody rang me up and said, Peter, can you see my glasses? <laughs> to which I replied, no. <laughs> Jesus was telling this story about lost things, though, with a really, really serious purpose. Because the sheep in the story of the shepherd really has terrific value. Yeah, let's get down to the Bible. Because the shepherd actually looks high and low for his sheep. He scours the hills to find his sheep. Because that sheep has real value. It has value both to the shepherd himself, who cares for the flock, but also for the owner of the flock. The shepherd doesn't say, well, it's only one in a hundred, that's only a 10% loss, I'm sure my owner can bear that. It's only a 1% loss, I can't even do arithmetic today. He doesn't say, oh, well, that's all right, I'll just ignore it, I'll cope with the 99 I've got. No, no, he leaves the others together on the hillside, which itself was a risk, and goes off looking. And for the shepherd in the Holy Land of Jesus' day, that was serious stuff. He would have to go uphill, down dale, he'd be going through a very rough landscape. He's taken the sheep to where he knows there's pasture. He's got to think, where did I leave it before? Where did I go before? He's going to have to look under bushes, over cliffs. It's going to be serious, it's going to be hazardous. It's going to be hard work. I mean, if you can't imagine that kind of landscape, just imagine trying to find one sheep on the side of the Cumbria Fells. Requires knowledge of places to look, persistence, willingness to make that physical effort. It may mean getting dirty, it may mean risk of injury to the shepherd himself. You get the message that the shepherd was serious about this. He cared about finding the sheep. And the woman with her lost coin shows something similar too. She doesn't say, oh well, I've still got nine. That's 90%. It's right that time. No, because those silver coins wouldn't just be money. They would have been part of a necklace, perhaps an inheritance, something really, really precious to her. So finding that missing coin was absolutely vital. Because the unit itself would be of no value unless it was complete. And so the woman in Jesus' story moves heaven and earth, or at least she moves the furniture, and she sweeps under and she looks in the corners and she searches and she searches and searches and all the nooks and crannies until she finds what she's looking for. Even though it disrupts her day, even though it creates more work, like the shepherd, there's an absolutely all-out search to find the thing that's been lost. So I have a question for you. Do you feel like that about people that do not know Jesus there's one thing that I found from preparing this talk this morning is to make me honestly wonder whether or not I do if nothing else comes from it it has to be an enhanced awareness of my need personally to let God move my heart more in this way So that what I know in theory, what I can assent to in my mind and my head, becomes much more important in my life as a whole. Because it is so easy to say, oh yes, they are important. Let someone go and find them. But that's not what God's saying, as we shall see. We've also seen that the two people that lost things in Jesus' stories both stopped at nothing until they'd found what had been lost. But they did not stop there. They parted. 
What was it that Jesus said about it? He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So if the whole of heaven can rejoice over one lost person being found, how much more should we? How significant is that? Doesn't that tell you something? Doesn't it tell you something about how God cares about people? Not only were the things worth finding in our stories, they were worth spending even more time and money on to celebrate. The father in the story of the prodigal son kills the fatted calf. How do you respond to someone coming to know Jesus? Or are you like the older brother in the story that Jesus told, who moaned at the apparent effort and the waste on behalf of his undeserving brother who'd gone away and squandered his inheritance? Or do you realise that what God has done for this person, what he also did for you, and celebrate with them? These ideas really should set some priorities in our lives. Discovering the loss of their precious things caused a major change in the shepherd and in the woman in Jesus' stories. Their priorities were completely altered. Only one thing mattered. Just imagine, some of you probably don't have to imagine it, you can probably remember it. A child separated from their parents in a big crowd on the beach or in a shopping mall. Whether that happened to you as a child when you went down to the water and looked back at all those people and you couldn't see mummy and daddy. Or when you've been shopping and both of you stopped to look at something and you turn around and the small child isn't there. That sense of isolation and loss on either side once that realisation is made. I know where I am, everything else has moved. Where are the familiar things that I'm looking for? Where is the one that I love and care about? And becomes an overwhelming desire to find one another. That happened to Mary and Joseph, you'll remember. A day into their journey back from Jerusalem when Jesus was about 12, they went to look for him and discovered he wasn't there. In fact, he was still back in Jerusalem in the temple talking to the teachers. By the time they got back, he'd been missing for three days. In the prodigal son story, the son initially given his money, he rejoices in his freedom and he goes off and he has the time of his life. But eventually he realises his loss when the money is gone. And he's stuck outside that pigsty, which would have been absolutely awful for a Jew. But eventually he realises it and he goes back to seek his father. For him, it was that sitting in poverty and isolation and memories of his childhood at home, perhaps, that brought it home. But you know, other people may not actually realise that they're separated from God if they've never been close to him in the first place. His brother, for instance, just resented his sibling and what his father did to celebrate his return. He remained aloof and separated from the both. But father was always on the lookout for someone on the path, running out to meet the returning child. And God is looking out for the lost returning too. They're his priority and they should be ours as well. It's such a priority for God that Jesus came to earth. He wants the people to be found, but he's not out there with a fishing line. 
He's not out there with a net trying to trap people. He wants people to be able to respond to him. So they've got to get the message, and they've got to get the message from somewhere. Right at the start of the passage we read together, we read, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. This is Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus actually told these stories about finding lost things to the people who were moaning at him for making friends with the people who were shut out from the rest of society. Jesus had made the effort to gather around him the people that the rest of the society rejected. And he got moaned at. But that is our example, our example is to befriend those that others may not. And I wonder whether the Pharisees listening to those stories realised actually that he was talking about them and that they were the ones who were lost. But the amazing thing about all this is that whilst Jesus, when he was here, set that example of going and befriending people, and particularly befriending the untouchables, in his wisdom, God has made us part of the process of reaching the lost. I can't understand why he does so, but he does. He chooses us to help the lost to realise that they are lost. And, not just to go and tell them that they're sinners and going to hell, which would not help them unduly, We're not to frighten people into the kingdom. We are to talk about God's grace and God's love. And we are to help them find a way back to where they belong. And this, we have said together, is a priority for us here at East Hampstead Baptist Church. We have got our five core values, the five C's. You can all remember what they are, can you not? They are caring, celebrating, Commitments, communication, community, celebration, caring, commitment, communication. So all of you have remembered some of them. Some of you may be particularly good and remember all of them. I have to admit, when I wrote them down on my notes, I had to go back and check. I was greatly relieved to find I was right. This business of communication is very relevant. We've said we'll do it. So it really should be a priority for us as individuals as well as a church, as much as a priority for us as it was for Christ himself. And that means we have to do things with purpose. We have to be intentional about it. That means thinking about those with whom we might build relationships. It means praying for those who we're concerned about so that we get to see them with God's eyes and heart. It means that we have to realise that we actually can do it. Because God has sent Holy Spirit to enliven us and to enable Jesus' followers to share the good news with others. We need actually to be open to the Holy Spirit to tell us when we should walk across the room. This series of studies that we're doing over the next two or three weeks is inspired by, but not 100% based upon, an amazing book by Bill Hybels, senior minister at Willow Creek. 
It's one of those books that I've half read, but the bit that I've read I have found extremely encouraging and helpful, and I shall continue to read the rest of it. Should you wish to get a copy, I commend it to you. That is roughly what it looks like. We have somebody down here working for Quench Shops who can get it for you. No problem at all. There was at least one copy on the shelf yesterday. And in his book, Bill Hybels talks about the simple idea that the first step towards befriending someone or sharing Jesus with them is to actually walk across the room and talk to them. Not walk across the room and preach the gospel at them, but just to be friends. He tells stories of how that happened, how he ended up getting alongside people for years and years and years before suddenly something clicked and they eventually came to find Christ. But for others for whom that very act was just what they needed at that moment for someone to show that they cared. And he tells of how when he walks across the room, he's praying like mad. This is Bill Hybels we're talking about, the man that's gone from nothing to a church of 25,000 plus in one of the biggest cities in America. Praying like mad to find out what to say next. So if you think you've got problems... No, you haven't. You're just the same as everybody else. But the difference is the Holy Spirit is there. The Holy Spirit can prompt. The Holy Spirit can fill that gap. You need to be willing to walk across the room, not dive in head first, but do what Jesus did and just be friends. Then be sensitive to the right moment to take things further. There's a wonderful story in the Acts of the Apostles when Philip was walking about sometime after the resurrection, wondering no doubt where on earth he was going, when by chance, or more to the point, by God's design I imagine, he met up with somebody who was on his way back from Jerusalem, who was on his way to Ethiopia. So he was working his way down into North Africa. And he was uh, an important political um, government official. And Philip sensed the spirit prompting him just to walk alongside the coach that this guy was travelling in and listened, and realised that he was reading from the scriptures and puzzling over things. And he was able to say, do you know what you're reading? And the guy said, well, no, I don't, I'm puzzled, because there's all this stuff going on in Jerusalem when I was there last week. And Philip said, do you want me to explain? And he did. And if you go and read the story, you'll know that he explained. And there, the Ethiopian eunuch said well, what is there to stop me from being baptised now? Now, that was instant success. But it, doesn't, it makes the point that Philip made himself available. When he got the nudge from the Holy Spirit, he responded. He didn't know what he was going to say, but he found the words to say. And there are other examples. You have to be prepared for rejection, but don't let fear of rejection stop you from trying. And it's an old cliche to say the greatest thing to fit, but fear is fear itself. Fear of fear... You need to trust God. And maybe just start with somebody in church. We're in a big enough church now for there to be quite a lot of people that we don't know that well. Most of you know that my name is Peter because somebody tells you pretty much every week when I'm up the front. And I can stand here and I can look out at you lot and I think, who are you, who are you, who are you? I see you every week. I haven't a clue who you are. I know you come. If I see you in the street, I'll smile. Hello, we are but if we're honest, there are quite a few of us that are like that. Mm. 
So maybe we need to start with someone here. Actually, when it comes to getting people involved, inviting them is, is the key. You know, if you want someone to come to a special event, for example, they won't come unless they're asked. If you want somebody to help serve in something, you can preach from the front all you like. You can say this job needs doing. And there may be somebody that longs to do it, but unless somebody asks, you won't actually respond. Which actually is a bit of a catch-22, because unless you know the person wants to be asked, you don't know whether you should ask them and so on. But if we're talking to each other, if we're understanding each other, we maybe begin to get these messages going around and the whole thing works better. You see, if people's waiting to be asked, they, there are two things if you ask them. They can either say yes or they can say no. If you do not ask them, they might as well assume that they've said no, because that guarantees no response. If they say no then there may be another opportunity when you can approach them. And you can still keep the friendship going. But if you say no for them by not inviting, there may not be another opportunity. So, are you lost? Has the world around you moved? Or are you really wanting to find someone else and help to guide them? to find the real guide. How much do you really care about finding lost people? As much as God does? What I want you to do now is just to think about someone that you know who needs to find God. God.